You are the foundation of your family. You are the firm footing they build their lives on. You carry a glorious burden and you never dream of laying it down. You carry it with joy and gratitude. You show up even when you don't feel like it. You lead, serve, love, and protect. You are a father. This is the Dad Work Podcast, where men are forged into elite husbands and fathers by learning what it takes to become harder to kill, easier to love, and equipped to lead. Get ready to start building the only legacy that truly matters, your family. All right, fellas, we're here for another episode of the Data Work Podcast. This is Kurt Storing, your host, and today I am joined by Dave Hollis. We go deep today talking about legacy and making the most of the limited time we have with our children, individualized parenting, and how to connect with each of your children's different personalities, tech boundaries with teens, a dad's primary role as parent, not friend, Dave's identity shift and how he navigated figuring out who he truly was in the midst of chaos, including the tools and habits he used, taking massive responsibility for your role as a husband in your marriage, healing and reframing core wounds, and finally Dave's children's book, Here's to Your Dreams, why he wrote it and the lessons that both dads and kids can learn from it. Dave Hollis is a New York Times bestselling author of Get Out of Your Own Way. He's a host of the Rise Together podcast. He's a health and fitness enthusiast and an online coach who works to inspire others to take control of their lives and create a future of fulfillment and purpose. Dave's history includes CEO of a media startup, former president of sales and distribution for the film studio at the Walt Disney Company, talent manager across film, TV, and music, and work in the publicity, research, and technology fields across the entertainment sector. Dave's philanthropy exists via the Dave Hollis Giving Fund, where acting as an ally to the needs of children in foster care, teen homelessness, and food insecurity have been a recent focus for grants. He's a father of four and a former foster parent to four more. Dave and his family live in Austin, Texas, where he drives a 1969 Ford Bronco named Incredible Hulk and has a mini schnauzer named Jeffrey. Dave sat on the board of the membership committee for the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, of which he is a member and on the boards of Fandango Labs, Will Rogers Motion Picture Pioneers, National Angels, and his alma mater, Pepperdine's Institute for Entertainment, Media, and Culture. Guys, this was awesome. Dave was able to be very vulnerable and open and candid about everything he is going through as a, as a parent and his journey through divorce, which was not something he ever envisioned nor wanted, and how he was able to move through that successfully, what he's learned through that, how he has used that to develop his own identity as a man and a father. And I was just really grateful that he came on and was able to share all these things because I know, you know, he's written a children's book and obviously we would love for you guys to check that out. It's actually really good. Um, That's one of the things I got and I was like, oh man, it's got good pictures. It's not going to be a great book because, you know, they, they spend too much money on pictures. It's like, oh, actually he's teaching lessons that are good for me and good for my kids. So I was actually really impressed. But the, like, that was just a little snippet of this massive conversation that I think is going to be very useful to any dad and any man, any husband who's going through any sort of challenge. So really grateful for Dave and the, the work that he's done here. You can find Dave online at mrdavehollis.com. That's mrdavehollis with two L's.com. His Instagram is the same, mrdavehollis. And you can find his books, Get Out of Your Own Way and the new one, Here's to Your Dreams. Anywhere that you buy books, uh, here's to your dreams.com is where you can find the newest one. Anyway, guys, jump into this episode. Thank you so much for listening along. If you've been getting value, why don't you take two seconds, hit pause, leave us a review, a rating so that more fathers who need this work can get it into their ears. Really appreciate you guys being here. Let's dive into this episode with Dave Hollis. All right, dads here for another amazing episode of the Dad Work Podcast today. I am pleased to be joined by Dave Hollis. Man, first of all, the first thing I have to say is my wife would be so jealous of your Bronco. What is the story with that? Why are you an old school Bronco guy? And like, how do I go on? Well, I wish that I had some like fancy backstory of Broncos being a part of my childhood and I want to recreate my childhood. No, I had a midlife crisis and uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's just sweet. eh? It's just awesome. Yeah. I was, uh, I was at the time working in a corporate environment, I worked at Disney for 17 years. And when I hit my 40th birthday, I just started asking a bunch of these like really big existential, why am I here? Is this the best use to my skills? What is even life about kind of stuff? And when I couldn't find the immediate answer, I was like, well, maybe a 1969 Ford Bronco being rebuilt from the ground up will help me answer some of those questions. And uh, <laughs> the did project it? began. <laughs> Man, did it answer any of those questions or is it now just uh, an awesome thing that you have? Well, I will for anyone who ever gets to the midlife moment or wants to answer the existential questions, answer this question right up front. It takes wildly longer to build a Bronco from scratch 
and it is way more expensive than you could possibly imagine. I, you know, I love that thing. I drive it all the time. And also, um, it's not a conversation vehicle. Like you can barely hear yourself inside. It sounds like a boat. And when you have built something and something goes wrong, right? I was driving home from having uh, dropped one of my kids at baseball practice. Sun gone down, headlights are on, headlights start flickering. I don't know what to do with, with flickering headlights outside of the fact that this is sometimes what happens when humans are building something from scratch. So uh, beware, just beware that uh, <laughs> there's a lot. All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I- yeah, I was super interested to see that. I think that's awesome, man. And uh, it's one of those fun things that it seems like you're at least aware of. It's like it was a thing that happened and we're all good. And now we'll move on. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I really want to chat to you about is parenting, uh, your situation, everything. You wrote a book, which we're going to get to in this conversation. And uh, the thing that came to mind was like, you got four kids, one of whom is adopted. You've been a foster parent. You wrote a children's book. You've got the Dave Hollis Giving Fund. Like, Dude, all of this is about kids. What is the story here? Is this a lifelong thing that like, did you have a great childhood? Did you have a bad childhood? What is this um, like just giving the service to children all about? Well, I mean, number one, I grew up in an amazing household. My mom and dad, great people named after my father is the first of four kids myself. And I had in their model the way that you're supposed to show up well and be present and intentional and take care of and love and see um, your kids. And so in some ways, I think it's, you know, to honor how I was afforded such a wonderful upbringing that I have a responsibility to try and show up well for my kids. But I actually think that some of the answers to the questions of why the heck am I here and what the heck does it all mean and what's it for end up coming back to this conversation around legacy. And truly, like at the end of the day, my legacy will be defined in so many ways by the kind of adults my children become. And so... I don't know. I've got 14, 15, 10, and five. With 14 and 15, there is a real consciousness for the limited amount of time that I have left with them in this house in a way that, you know, just wasn't present previously. And so really thinking about, well, how am I going to make the most of the time that we have? And how are we going to intentionally connect? Um, You know, they're all just so incredibly different. All four of my kids, so different. But it requires, you know, this like kind of nuanced approach to having some things and respect and decency and kindness, like the values that you want them to hold across the board, but also a pretty specialized kind of dad that each of them individually need because they all end up having something that's just a little bit different in either love language or their kind of emotional needs or the way that they respond to spending time versus physical touch versus whatever might end up being. And so um, I don't know. I just like, I, I, I know at the end of the day, there are so many things that had previously defined me from my job or my marital status or whatever else it might be. Being a dad to these kids is a thing that feels like it will be a constant for the rest of time. And so I want to do my very best to think about it through the lens of legacy and think about it through the lens of honoring this great parenting duo that I had when my, when I was growing up myself. Man, that is so inspiring. And I love the word legacy there. That's something that we work on in my programs, uh, becoming a better leader so that you can leave the only legacy that matters, which for me is the same thing, man, it's a family. Like who are my kids going to be such that when they are adults, when I'm either a very old man, I've got great, great grandchildren or people know about my ancestors are going to be like, oh yeah, they had that old guy. He was badass. Like he did all of these things. He was the one they all built on. He was the rock. Like that's the only legacy that I want. I don't care if I've got a trillion dollars in the bank. I don't need my name on some science building in the university. It's like if people know that my ancestors are well-adjusted, love each other and are just like amazing people. I don't know what could be better. Yeah. And I've also heard that thing about the identity, like you said, like tied into the marriage, tied into the business, you tied into like being an athlete, all those things, hopefully not, but all those things can go away. But even if your children went away in the most tragic circumstances, I feel like you'd still be a dad. Oh, yeah. Like that's never going away. I love that. What has that led to in terms of like how you parent? Because I want to get into things like the individualized parenting you just mentioned, uh, the intentionality and um, just like teenagers, honestly, <laughs> my yeah. oldest is almost 10. So we're getting in there. But like what sort of principles and stuff are you bringing into parenting that this awareness is letting you uh, lead with? 
Well, I'll start with the individualized parenting, because I think for me, if there was a thing I totally got wrong or just, you know, wouldn't have picked up in a what to expect when you're expecting book prior to becoming a dad, I just thought you were the same dad to all, all kids, however many you end up having, that um, the, the way that you are with one is the way that you are with another. The likes of one would likely be the likes of another. And I just I couldn't have been more off. I have um, in my oldest son, he's deeply entrenched in musical theater, has this amazing friend group. But a lot of his gifts come out inside of performing arts. My 14 year old is the sports person. Every sport, any sport, he's in it. We've got a traveling baseball team that uh, defines our weekends in, in a lot, a lot of distance often. Um, but man, there is something about him becoming his very best aligned self when he is holding a bat, throwing a ball, whatever it ends up being. My 10 year old is super creative. He is the one that uh, if he had the choice between a screen or as it was the other day, when I came home from work, making a chandelier out of yarn and bottle caps, right? Like, He's the guy that's like, you know, working on something that it wouldn't have even occurred to the other three kids. And my daughter at five is the queen of the world. I mean, she she is, uh, yes, the youngest and yes, the only girl, but also um, is equal parts into dance and ballet as much as she is into her taekwondo class and taking over the universe. So um, what it means for me, though, in individualized parenting is as much as, yep, I'm going to try and get us around a dinner table every night for dinner. And as much as there are, of course, going to be the communal things that we do, one-on-one time has been a super important thing for us in making sure that I'm connecting in spaces that tickle the things that they are most interested in, that lean into their own sensibility or their own passion so that I can reinforce that they're seen and that the person that they are and the way that I'm trying to hold space for them to continue to become themselves instead of who I'd hope for them to be or who they need to be relative to their siblings um, is something that's fostered. And so we spend we spend time doing super different things, but on an individual one-on-one basis. So usually what will happen is, all right, it's a weekend. We're going to have a morning with one, then an afternoon with another, then a morning with another, and then an afternoon with another. And just finding, it could be as simple as with my 10-year-old who loves nature and creativity, we're going to go out back. We're going to go try and find three or four different rocks of a certain size to bring back in and do some painting on. Okay, rat. That's not a thing that my kid who's into sports would be up for. I've got a pitching machine up by the garage. We might go up and throw some balls into the pitching machine and have some conversation about whatever it is that's happening in his life while he's doing a thing he loves most, swinging a bat. So um, I think I would just, you know, making sure that your kids are seen by you, that you appreciate the individuality and that you're pouring into some intentional time around the things that make them who they are uh, has been a super important way for connecting. I mean, you mentioned teens and I will say, you know, like the difference between 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 ends up being pretty dramatic with my older two in that they're, you know, they're more entrenched in their friendship circles, enabled now more than ever by technology (laughs) and the predisposition when they come home is to hermit. And so they'll come in, head to their room, they'll come in, they'll be on a screen, they're connecting with their friends instead of what previously was us congregating in a living room, watching something together, doing something together, even just having conversation. And so it does in fact require in in this instance, space, right? Like I can ask how you doing and get one word answers all day long. But sometimes it's, you know, sitting in a car and leaving the quiet space long enough that a conversation starts that wouldn't have otherwise if it felt forced. But also it requires something in kind of boundaries or rules to force interaction that wouldn't have otherwise happened if they weren't if they didn't exist. So we've got some pretty strict tech boundaries around when you can and can't be on screens There's, uh, you know, a time after which each night in the absence of screens, we're getting together in the living room, sitting around the dinner table. Um, And guess what? At the beginning, like any muscle, it's just not exercise. It's not a thing that maybe they're totally used to. But at a certain point, it does become something that creates some fluency and some regularity that just, oh, this is what we do. And sometimes we'll watch a show. Sometimes we'll play a game. Sometimes we'll just sit and have a conversation. 
But creating that space and forcing a little bit of that interaction by creating rules or some limitations on the distractions that would otherwise keep them from engaging has seemed to work for us. And, uh, you know, we'll see as they continue to get older. I think I brace myself like, what's the next phase going to be? Like, (laughs) we've just got kind of like early teen thing, you know, as they start to date. Oh, I can't even think about it. Like, what is that? (laughs) Right. Um, But like with everything, there's cycles. And, uh, you know, as one kid is growing out of the previous cycle, the next of the kids are you know kind of coming right in, at least at this point, the older kids are giving a little bit of a here's what to expect when this next child rolls into this next phase, because now we've at least been through it. Yeah. And it's so funny. You've been through it before and yet it's going to be so different next time because the kids are different. And it's like, oh, dude, didn't I do this already? But it was totally different. And man, there's so much good in that. Thank you for sharing all those things because there's a lot of times in there that I see uh, a lot of things in there that I see that are super impactful, like the one-on-one time. Uh, That's what I got my guys going through like every week. You've got to book it in your calendar. You've got to have it intentionally like that because I've noticed the same thing. Where it's like, you know, the first kid comes out and when he was like two, his brother was born for me. I've got three boys now. It's like, oh, they're just all going to love dinosaurs and cars. Like, sweet. I'm just going to get a whole bunch of them. And then it's like, wait, why aren't you playing with these? So it starts so early. And now I just see it more and more. They're 10, 7, and 2. And it's like, okay, you are great at this, but you have no interest in this. And finding out who they are, uh, I was talking to a guy called Ken Curry on this podcast recently. And he suggested that after protecting and providing... A father's main role should be to help build the identity of the child to who the child should be. And I heard you say something very similar, which is like, I'm here to support them to becoming who they want to be. Has that been something that came naturally? Because for me personally, laying it all out there, I'm very controlling. And it's one of those things I have to work on. And I've only recently, in the grand scheme of things, come to the understanding that like, dude, you're totally right. I need to support them in the way that they should be going, not the way I want them to go. So is that something you had to consciously work on? Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I coming into being a parent, like I just figured erroneously that uh, my kids were going to be like I was when I was growing up. And so my oldest, right, like uh, when I had a, you know, a boy first, all I could think of was we'll hit Little League, then we'll have our soccer games. And then, we'll, you know, it's like I was looking to in some ways repeat some of the best experiences of my own childhood, thinking that was just going to be the thing that he'd be into. And we got him in a uniform for baseball, got him in a uniform for soccer. And it was clear he didn't like to play sports. He was not interested in being out there. He had, you know, like he was doing it, I think, at the beginning because of my excitement for him to be doing this thing that I I did myself and was hoping that he'd be excited about himself. And, and I, I think there's a point at which I had to almost grieve a little bit that this wasn't going to look exactly the way that I maybe had imagined. But I was very quickly able to transition from grieving, as it were, to celebrating. Oh, it's going to be different. But part of it being different meant that it also increased the level of difficulty for knowing exactly what to do next, because I had a playbook for what worked for me. But this wasn't going to necessarily be his road and supporting whatever, whatever it was that he got into. Like, like the musical theater experience for him has been so rad. He's just like so great at it. It's where he's, he's just alive. And I didn't, I've never been in a musical, I haven't done anything in theater ever. And so like knowing like how to be excited about it or what to do was a thing that I had to learn. And so I think for each of the kids, the good thing is I I got that learning with my first. So I, you know, was fortunate then with each of the subsequent children to have a different kind of perspective on activities. For me, it was like, we will, we will spend time investing in your activities, whether it's with our time or our money or whatever else it is, but it has to be because it's a thing that you are committed to that you really want to do. And if it's not going to be a thing that you're completely into, I'm not going to push it. I mean, I like to have my kids in like an activity, a season, as it were, whether it's like the summer season or winter season. I think team sports are good or activities generally are you know good for social dynamic stuff and for growing. But also, if you aren't like almost begging me to take you to practice because you're so into the thing that we're doing, uh, that's going to be a no for me, dog. Like I just like I'm not interested in like pushing or putting someone into something. Now, are there exceptions? Sure. I've got my youngest two right now in Taekwondo 
And the Taekwondo was a response to me appreciating that they needed something that Taekwondo, I think, could offer for them. And so I, 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 against maybe them having volunteered that it was a thing that they were excited about, I was like, you know what? We're going to do ourselves some Taekwondo, right? It's going to teach you a little discipline. It's going to keep you active. It's going to, I think, help build a little bit of esteem in having you work hard and seeing the cause and effect of hard work and results. There's some belts that you can try and work your way to. You might feel something as you acquire skill and as you develop a little mastery or recognized for that, that acquisition. And at first there was like, ah, oh, I don't know. And it's something that, of course, like has grown on them and has become something that they're excited about. But um, I don't know. Long way of saying, I think, you know, if there's a mistake that I made at the beginning, it was thinking that, oh, my kid's going to just want to do the things that I did when I was growing up. And um, finding a way to really celebrate their individual passions with activities, with social circles, with whatever it ends up being that continues to bring out more of who they already are. Um, that's been the thing that's been the most rewarding and, of course, is the thing that makes them feel the best. And you know what, dude? I found it so much less stressful to just be the observer and the guider rather than like the, the guy moving the chess piece himself. Yeah. Uh, like I, I would much rather just le lean back. Okay. What are you looking for? Who are you? What do you need? Okay. Here's a thing that I see that you probably ain't going to like, and I'll just support you all along the way rather than like, same thing for me. I was like, Oh, we're going to play hockey all the time. Like yep. literally every day we're just gonna play hockey. They all hate it. I'm like, Oh <laughs> no, it's the worst. <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to get, uh, um, a little bit more of your, feedback on was the boundaries piece with the teens and the tech. And I think this is an opportunity to dive, you know, into the specifics in a sense, but I'm more interested in how you were able to set those boundaries because I talked to a lot of parents who are like, well, I just don't know how to get in there. And then they start fights and then I don't know what to do. And there's no leadership. What does it look like in your family when you set boundaries, um, whether it's this particular thing with the, the phones and the screens or anything else? Well, I mean, I'd love, I mean, my kids think we live in a democracy in this house and uh, we don't. <laughs> I, of course, take, uh, you know, the things that they uh, desire and uh, keep them on the list of things to consider when I'm trying to figure out what is actually best for them. But at the end of the day, I thought I knew it was best for me at 14 and 15 years old, and I definitely did not. And it's a thing that I have to politely rem remind them, hey, I've got a little more perspective here, potentially, that... Uh, my best, you know, my desire for your best interest and your desires are probably going to conflict sometimes. And that's OK. But uh, because I care about your you know, mental well-being, uh, you will not have access to social media, period. Like my kids aren't allowed to go onto Instagram, Facebook, you know, uh, any of the social platforms because I'm a 47 year old kid and it messes with me. So I can only imagine how it might mess with a 14 or 15 year old as they're still trying to develop. Um, that's just going to be a, a thing that we stay away from. Um, but also as much as, man, there aren't enough studies yet to really appreciate what the impact of all the access to screens ends up being on the way we develop. Uh, it feels like at least the, the study that's been done inside of this house, when my kids have more access to screens, they behave in ways that are somewhat disjointed from the way I'd hope for them to show up in the world. They're maybe a little less attentive. They don't listen as well. They don't follow through as well. There's a little less respect. And so creating some time blocks for, uh, we're only going to have an hour, you know, maybe it's a couple hours during the week and, you know, a little more access on the weekend. There's no tech time that happens after 8 PM. That's just the rule if you want to live in the house. And so um, do I trust them to follow those rules? I do not because they are um, good kids uh, but they are kids, you know, nonetheless. And so I have, you know, technology that actually turns their ability to access the Internet off or access their texting off at a certain time. And so when that time hits, their phones are, uh, you know, useful for Frisbee, but maybe nothing else. And at that point, uh, it, you know, again, it acts as a catalyst of, OK, what are you going to do now? OK, we might have to actually have a conversation. We might actually have to pick up you know, watching one of the shows that we're, we're binging, you know, whatever it ends up being. Um, but it's, I think, just an explanation of kind of the, the why behind it. Hey, I want to make sure that I am preserving your mental health and explaining, 
hey, you know, I watched this fantastic documentary on Netflix that was all about the kind of impact of social media on young minds. And I engaged in a conversation with them like, look, don't believe me. Fine. Let's believe some of what is being reported in how these social networks are trying to manipulate the way that we spend our time or think our thoughts or feel about ourselves so that in the dopamine hits that are coming at the frequency that they're coming, we won't ever put them down. I want to protect you from that. And uh, if I didn't love you, you could just stay on screens all the time. Um, I think a little bit of, you know, my kids, I, I think I underestimate every once in a while that they have an appreciation for deeper thought. My 10-year-old is smart enough at this point to actually conceptualize that if I care about him and I understand that there's risk in him being exposed to something, that I will actually, as a loving parent, create a boundary on his behalf because of love. Um, and guess what? He still gets upset about it. That's okay. I get upset about all kinds of things. But if those things are put in place because they're for my own good, I have to make peace with that. And they do. Yeah, that's brilliant, man. And the first thing that I heard you say there is like, I'm the leader. And it's not in like, uh, not a negative sense, not in a dictatorship, tyrannical, whatever. But it's like, it's not a democracy. And therefore, like you are the leader, but your children need that. And this is what I've seen as well as people are like, oh, I just don't want to get in, like step on their toes. They need to make their own decisions. And that's fine. But I found permissiveness is not a good parenting strategy. They are not yet ready, like you said, to make all these decisions because we know how much it messes with us yeah. as adults. And so I think I love that stepping into the leadership first and then having very real consequences, which is like, you literally just can't do it. Like I, you won't be able to use your phone. And then if you don't like it, then there's conversation after. It's not my way or the highway just because. It's my way or the highway because I love you. And that, man, like that is the key piece of this whole boundary piece, I think, rather than control, which I know I have struck into in my previous less than ideal fatherhood moments. Yeah. Uh, so I really... I mean, I think control is definitely a pothole that I've you know stepped in and I think a lot of parents step in. But I also think... The, the most of the mistakes that I have made in parenting is when I was more interested in keeping my kids happy than I was in helping them become good people or you know, like I, you know, not having the right boundaries or not having a consequence when a boundary is crossed has been one of those things where like there's a short term oh, to just make life easier path of less resistance, but long term it's trained this, oh, I, you know, I, the rules don't really matter because the last time I broke one, I didn't really get in trouble. And so I think the thing that I've had to continue to work on over time as a parent is this reminder that it is not my job to be my kid's friend. You know, like as, as much as I do think of them as some of my very best friends, my primary role is not to be their friend. My parent primary role is to be their parent. And being a parent means that they are going to be unhappy with some of the decisions that you make because, you know, as much as they'd hope to be living at Burger King where they get it their way, this isn't Burger King. This is the Hollis house. And I have a desire for you. Like my role as a dad is to have them leave the house as the best, most equipped human being as they enter the world at 18, 19, 20, whatever it ends up being when they leave the house. And if I don't do my job well, then this idea of legacy is compromised because I've let, let them leave the house not fully prepared. Well, how do you get to prepared? Prepared comes in hard conversations. Prepared comes in grounding at times or taking phones away or having boundaries that if you break, there are consequences for. And so um, it, it does make it harder as a parent because there are days when I've had a long day and just like, God. I don't want to expend additional energy having this little infraction, a thing that I have to now have a conversation about, but trying to keep them in a state of integrity. Hey, you're going to do what you say, you, you know, you, you got to do what you have said you're going to do all the time. That takes work. And I think the work is worth it as long as you keep your eye on the big prize as opposed to the short term pain of having to deal with it. Yeah, man, that's very well said. And I love that identity piece where it's just like, 
I'm their dad. I am literally responsible for so much. Maybe not all of it. They're their own people. we got to throw God in the mix as well. But we are so responsible for how they turn out based on how we act. And so skimping on that, like, well, I'm tired, is the same thing as when you hit the snooze button and you don't go to the gym in the morning. It's just like that little bit of trust from them, but also for yourself because that lack of self-respect starts to creep in. Well, I didn't do that last time. You are now falling out of integrity. And so I love that really solidifying your dad role as being the guy who's supposed to launch them well, really. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of identity, I, I want to get back into parenting, but I'm very interested in this. I know I this is not the fun. And I'm sorry, I know we're recording. Yeah, no, 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 it's all good, man. It's all good. Got that red thing popped up in the corner. There we go. Sorry about that. No, it's all good. I was on a podcast the other day. I was down to 1% because there's a storm outside, no internet, no power, 1%. I'm literally telling my testimony. I'm a new Christian. I recently, I was telling my testimony. I was like, we're going to die. 1% left. Boom. Power's back on and I get to finish. I was like, (laughs) brush with the Lord, man. It was intense. So anyway, (laughs) all right, we're back. Uh, I want to make sure we get back to parenting because there's more, especially in relation to the book. But dude, I have to ask. And this is the thing that I asked your publicist, your your assistant. I was like, can yeah. we get into this? Because it's going to help so many guys to hear where you've been and how you've got through it. You, I think this is, uh, I can't remember if this is a quote from an article or from you, but basically you were battling through conditions totally out of your control as you, from the outside, went through this totally like random, where did this come from divorce with your ex-wife? And one of the pieces in that, the reason that I'm coming here now is this piece of identity I think so many guys can learn who they are before, you know, crap hits the fan, so to speak. And I'm curious if you just walk us through that experience and how you stay grounded, how you showed up as a dad, how you built that identity outside of being your wife's husband. Yeah. I mean, identity shift has been a theme for me for the last five or six years. I I mean, even before the divorce, I'd had this, I mentioned it, this corporate existence where... For 20 plus years, I worked, you know, had, you know, in big companies, business cards that had titles and had identified myself in so many ways by the end of my time at Disney as a guy who worked at Disney. I left as the president of sales. I jumped in to do something in entrepreneurship. But that first shift, man, it was so jarring because there was predictability. There was something in ego. There was something in safety and security that that identity now not existing, had me having to figure out, well, what is it, you know, who am I now that I'm no longer who I've been? And the work of, you know, developing a sense of who I was now inside of building a company, it was something that happened over time. But for anyone who's been through any kind of identity change, it doesn't happen easily, but it's not meant to happen easy. Uh, And I've got this quote when I first started my identity shifts, it says, "A, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships were built for. And I got it as this reminder that I am built for the choppiness that exists as I continue to pursue purpose and calling that the the big waves, they are a thing that actually will deliver me to a more evolved growth, you know, only existing inside of that choppiness of the water and that I'm I'm a ship that can handle all of that chop. Uh, but just because, you know, you believe yourself to be able to handle it doesn't mean that it's you know necessarily fun. A couple years into the move from California to Texas, yeah, my marriage ended. And we'd been building a company for the couple of years leading up to our conversation. And it wasn't something that we'd had much conversation about. So the kind of the surprise of, hey, this part of your identity now is going to go away was again, a very jarring thing. And I think for me, you know, I'd been asked in just the the handful of days preceding us really having our first and last conversation about divorce, what I would identify myself primary identity wise. And the answer was husband to her. And so now that this primary pillar of who I was was gone, I was left again to figure out, well, who am I outside of this descriptor? I think for me, like so many things, you know, there, there's a story in the Bible of Lazarus who had to die to be brought back to life, right? The story is only relevant because he had to die to be brought back to life. 
And it provoked for me in that season post-divorce a question of like, well, what in me might have to die in order for me to be brought back to life? And for me, it was ego and certainty and identity and sometimes sanity. Like there were a whole host of things that had to die so that from the ground I could build myself back up. And so the questions that I started asking again were like, who, who are you, Dave? Who were you before you became who you've become? Who were you before you were a husband? Who were you before you were a father? Who were you before you worked at this company or did this thing? Who were you before you wrote a book? Who were you? And, you know, I can come back to like, I'm a child of God. You know, yeah, I do identify certainly as the father of these kids. But, you know, outside of a descriptor involving anyone or anything else, I am who I am. I am me. And so like developing a relationship with myself where I can love myself and respect myself and have dignity for my actions. That's something that I have been working on in the midst of all of these changes, because like anything, your identity can change at any time if it's, if it's hooked to any external source. And so I want to continue to do the work. And I encourage anyone who's listening to continue to do the work of defining who you are at your core, at your essence, who you are, irrespective of a descriptor of, of boss or husband or wife or father, you know, whatever it might be. Um, because the more that I get to know myself, the more that I have peace in being by myself, when I get comfortable with how do I feel about myself when I am alone, um, those kinds of things happen when your identity is, is less about who you are to them and who you are to yourself. Yeah, man, that's like being refined by fire comes oh, yeah. to mind, right? It's like, oh, you're, you're just in it now and you got to make your way through it. And I love this piece on identity because I see a lot of guys in relationship or in business or whatever, who are still struggling with that. And it's like, okay, here's the most extreme example. You know, you get this rug pulled out from underneath you. You're identified very heavily as the husband of your wife. And now you got to figure it out. Were there tools, were there journaling prompts, were there anything like that, that you actually did for the work piece? I know you already gave us a bunch of questions, which are fantastic. Was there anything else to that? Um, and, and maybe one of the places to go is just being out in the world as yeah. yourself, because I've noticed that my own identity is most significantly strengthened when I'm just in the arena getting hurt and really like being in front of everyone being sniped at, I can find out who I truly am. So what other things did you do along that process to become who you are now and who you're growing into? Yeah. Well, the thing I did first was uh, <laughs> draw as close as I could to God. Uh, there's a verse um, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And I, I don't know that I had an appreciation for, you know, how much God can handle or how much you, uh, you know, can also handle when you are drawing near to some force that's wildly greater than you, than you are. But I started, you know, like I, I was overwhelmed, to be honest, at the beginning with trying to cast a vision for what future was going to look like, since it was going to so clearly be different than everything I'd ever imagined. And so rather than trying to like see the rest of my life or the next 10 years of my life or the next one year of my life, I tried to imagine what 90 days in the future might look like as I was continuing to kind of rebuild. And so I'd ask this very simple question, what, Dave, do you need in this season to create some momentum, to get closer to who you'd hope to become, to feel more whole, full, aligned? And I asked the question against five dimensions of health. What do you need in this season for your physical health, for your mental health, for your emotional health, for your spiritual health, and for your relational health? And for each of those things, I made a list of two or three things that I knew I needed very specifically at that point in time. And so, like, you know, physically, it could have been, you know, about eating the right thing or not drinking or whatever, um, you know, just to make sure I was fueling my body with the right thing, moving my body a certain amount of time. But I got specific in like the mental and emotional health side with like, I need to see therapists on a regular basis. I need to, in my instance, I really wanted to understand why I was thinking and feeling the things I was thinking and feeling. And so I found those answers in books. I you know, started reading a lot about why we think the way we think and neuroplasticity and how to change the way that negative thoughts are, you know, spending as much time and taking residence in your mind. Um, but I made that list and that list of things that like, you know, call it 10 to 15 things that came out of those five different categories became my daily routine, became my short term goals, became 
something that was me trying to engineer some new habits so that I could in an, in a season where I just didn't have a clear sense of necessarily what the full future looked like, I could at least conjure what I wanted to have the next couple of months feel like and had the faith that if I could at least start doing these things that would create some momentum, that I'd start to see that fuller picture once I was up and going. Right. So it's all about like action at this point, because I know that a lot of guys we work with, we go big vision, you know, usually they're a little bit more settled. They have some stuff that they can draw on, but that opposite is also true when you're just in it. You're like, man, someone threw me in the arena and I have to run. I can't think about where I want to be at the end of the race. It's like, what's the next step? And then there's action associated with that. And I think personally, action is the antidote to average, to apathy, to all these things. I'm hearing a lot of action taking here. Uh, Now, in regards to like relationship itself, I'm sure that there were blind spots on your end. And I know that this was not something you've talked about before, uh, or you have talked about before that this was not your desire. You know, this is not what you wanted the outcome to be here. And yet I think there's usually uh responsibility on both sides. And I'm curious if you have learned anything from this that were blind spots that you can maybe give to other men who don't even know that this is coming, who don't want to be blindsided, who are knowing later, like, oh man, relationships not perfect. Did you learn anything about where you might have not been showing up or any lessons throughout the process as you were digesting your own role in this? Oh, of course. I mean, man, like I have massive responsibility. I think there's always going to be responsibility on both sides. I think what's interesting is I was so inside of uh, a bubble, as it were, that sometimes it takes something like the end of a relationship for you to actually be able to see it in a more um, objective way. And, in, and I think only because of you know the relationship ending, but also time passage, that you can actually then be gifted the ability to really see, oh, man, there were things that just didn't make it a great pairing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we've got to like laundry list the, Oh, she did, or he did, you know, we had a great marriage. It lasted for 16 years. And as much as I would have fought to stay inside it for the rest of my life, it was only on the outside of it that I can appreciate how much gratitude I end up having now for her courage to make a decision that I would have never made. And so there's, I think, you know, at the time, it just felt like the hardest thing in the entire world. And I was heartbroken and had so much grief for this vision of how I'd hoped for our family to spend the rest of time inside of the same house with our vacations and our traditions and everything else. And also, we're both, we were both gifted in some crazy kind of way, the freedom to fully become who we were meant to be. I mean, one of the questions, and this is like a, you know, I don't know that I've talked that much about this, but one of the questions that was asked in the days leading up to our conversation was, Dave, do you think that you can be the man that God created you to be married to me? And that's like a, whoa, the floor is going to fall out from under me kind of question. And the reality is I think I knew almost as soon as it came out of her mouth that the answer was likely no, that there were things in relationship pattern, there were things in me in some ways kind of losing myself inside of and in service to the marriage that probably were going to keep me from fully becoming this most aligned version of who I think I'm meant to be on this planet. Um, but I didn't want to admit that. I, you know, I was like, hey, who wants to admit that? But now that I can see it, you know, as much as, yeah, there were a thousand small problems. You know, there weren't there weren't like big, huge, oh my goodness kind of problems. There was just this recognition that, hey, we both deserve the opportunity to be all of who God created us to be. And that, um, you know, coming to a place of peace with that and coming to a place where I can I kind of hold it at the same time, just so much appreciation and gratitude for what was and so much appreciation and gratitude for the opportunity to let the rest of my life unfold the way that it will um, it's not something certainly that happens immediately in the aftermath of a huge change and a big identity shift, but it is something that happens and in, in grateful, grateful that it does over time. Man, that's so, thank you for sharing that. By the yeah. way, um, I, I really appreciate that. And it seems like it's that identity, identity piece again, eh? It's like, can you be who God made you to be in this relationship? Like identity. So I guess the question that comes up to me is like, is this the thing then, man? Like, is it that the identity was not authentic? Not that you weren't being you, not that you weren't being a good man, but is like, is this the first time you felt like really, truly like Dave then? 
rather than a husband, rather than whatever? Like, are you, is this the thing that was the issue? I feel more like Dave. And I also feel like I'm just barely beginning to appreciate who I am. And like, even understanding some of the in, like the, the intricacies of why I do the things I do and how I'm wired. I spent a, a decent amount of time this last week journaling about this thing that um, my, one of my very close friends and I were talking about this idea of a core wound, that every single one of us has something that lives inside of us as a, as, as a core wound that informs our limiting beliefs, that informs our vices, that informs our negative self-talk. It informs just like so many things. And the journey that we all are on is to either find ways to heal some of that wound or understand the way that that wound presents such that we can actually proactively cut off some of the negative reflexes that that wound tends to create that don't produce us at our best, that don't have us, you know, showing up in a relationship the way that we would want or showing up for ourselves the way that we would want. That kind of, those kind of things, um, insights wise, are the byproduct of what ends up being the required work of rebuilding in the aftermath of something traumatic, like the end of a relationship and divorce. And so bizarrely, like, man, I don't know that I would ever gotten to a place where I'd had some of the insights. I feel sad that I couldn't have seen some of it when I was inside of the marriage. But I also am grateful that, you know, it's through pain, it's through crying, it's through feeling the things that you end up feeling that you are afforded access to, or at a minimum are given an invitation to access. It's a choice then if you decide to, but um, you're, you're afforded now an invitation to pull on the thread to figure out, well, what is it about me? What is it about my past or my programming or my family of origin or this, this you know, core wound that I have not tended to? What is this core wound and its relationship to my inner child saying it needs? And if I were to, you know, if I were to actually find a way to give myself some of what it needs, would it change the way that I feel? Would it change the way I show up for my kids? Would it change the way that, I mean, the, the biggest thing, I mean, it starts and almost ends here. Like, how do I feel about myself when I'm by myself, right? When I'm living in integrity, when I'm keeping my word to myself, when my, my values and my actions are aligned, I tend to feel pretty great. When I deviate, when there's, a, there's some kind of dissonance between who I say I want to be and how I'm showing up, when I've said I'm going to do something and then I don't keep my word to myself, that's where the shame shows up. That's where the self-doubt festers. That's where my confidence gets compromised. So, you know, it kind of like starts there because when I'm in alignment with me, when I, when I like, you know, actually can like myself, I mean, love myself as the kind of, you know, aspirational goal because of the way that I've lived in an alignment or an integrity with who I say I want to be, then my kids get their best dad. Then my coworkers get the best Dave. Then the people that I'm trying to serve when I write a book, whatever it might be, get the best of what I'm producing because it's coming from a place that's more fully love. It's just, I, I am love and light. I am aligned. I am actualizing this intention of a creator who put me here for a very specific reason. Bro, I am so glad you touched on that core wound piece because this is like, this is the deepest stuff. This is the stuff that for me... I have found in my life the greatest gifts I have all. Every single one of them grew out of the gardens of my deepest wounds. And it took being confronted with those wounds and it took going to look at those wounds in order to then work on them and now be deeply, deeply grateful. Like for me, man, the, the core wound that I identified was dad left when I was three. Mom had a very hard time with it because obviously why wouldn't you? And then I was just alone. Abandonment. I had to only trust myself. And what I realized in conversation with other men, in conversation with a mentor, which is why brotherhood is so important in this, is that, dude, I still felt like that three-year-old who just wanted his mom and his dad back. Yeah, I wanted someone to be bigger than me. And that was where so many of my patterns came from in relationship, in self-talk, in confidence. And it was all that one piece. And it took me saying it out loud, owning it, noting it, owning it, and then you have to transform it. You have to do some alchemy. You got to let go. You got to leave it behind. But dude, now I'm so grateful for the life and the pain that I've experienced, whereas before I was a victim. And what it took for me, I'm curious if maybe the same things happened for you, is I had to forgive. And that was the hardest. I wanted 
forget. I wanted to hear, oh, hey, I'm sorry, Kurt. I wanted my mom, my dad to tell me, oh, I'm sorry. I know how much it hurts, but like, I just had to forgive him anyway. I had to forgive myself as well for acting out in that place. Uh, anyway, dude, I'm, I'm really energetic about this kind of stuff, but have you del- del- um, what's the word? delved into forgiveness or gratitude around this stuff at all? Forgiveness for sure. I mean, forgiveness isn't for the other person. Forgiveness is for you. You know, not forgiving someone is like swallowing poison and hoping that, you know, they're going to be the ones that end up being affected by it. Like, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but forgiving other people, honestly, the hardest thing I think for me has been forgiving myself because there are certainly times when I've given in to drinking, I've given in to, you know, not showing up for myself. My patterns have led me into that misaligned state where I didn't feel great, where I didn't love myself, where my kids didn't get the best version of me because of the way that those patterns pulled me away, that, um, man, I'm, 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 you know, anyone can say anything about me. I am way harder on myself than anybody else could possibly be. And so, you know, I have to actively work on compassion for myself. I have to actively work on forgiveness for myself because I'm doing the very best that I can with the tools that I have and, I do feel grateful, like you say, for the way that some of that pain that I end up, you know, like either I have a shame for, I have a hard time forgiving myself for, that, that that pain has been a catalyst for breakthroughs and for learning and for insights about who I am and why I am the way I am. Um, and that's, it's been beautiful. And so I do feel like, man, it is all a journey. It's all in some ways information, right? Like we're all just learning as we go. Um, but I feel grateful here at 47. I, I know myself so much more than I did at 37. And it gives me some hope that by the time I hit 57, that I'm going to have even more, hopefully because of, um, you know, having acquired that many more tools and not because there's just a massive amount of pain still coming in this next decade. But I prepared myself at, at a minimum for this recognition. Like pain is a guarantee, like there will be pain and I will have to learn through mistakes, I have to learn through, you know, going through hard things. But in some ways, because of the gift of what these last three years have meant and getting through what for me was the hardest thing I've ever experienced at the, in the end of my marriage, um, there's been so much good that has been produced in large part because it was directly proportional to the amount of pain that I was exposed to. And so I think like, you can't, you don't get the high high if you don't experience sometimes and have to learn from the low low. So uh, I'm not I'm not you know looking to manifest the low, but when it comes, I do get the benefit of knowing that it means that there's also going to be some great learning and the bounce to the high when I actually get through it. And dude, you can serve so many more guys now. Like, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but dude, you yeah. have now gone through the darkness that so many men find themselves in and you being you, which is a creator, which is an author, which is like a guy with influence can be like, Hey, here's what happened to me. I wouldn't have been able to guide you through this, but now there's hope for millions. Like, dude, that fires me up so much. And that's why I give thanks every single day for my wounds, because it's the only reason I'm out here doing this in the first place, yeah. right? It's, no, it's helping other guys not go through what I had to go through or helping them along the way. But oof. Dude, I'm fired up now. I'm going to go run through a wall after this. Uh, (laughs) Let's go. But this brings me to the question that I was going to ask before I got totally distracted on the amazing like core wound stuff. That's so, so amazing. Uh, You got an adopted daughter and now you got a single parenter. That's probably not what you expected. And yet you just came out with this amazing book. It's so sweet. And it's, dude, the lessons in there. I was like, I've read a million kids books, like a million, at least every single book in the library three times over. And they're like, okay, they got the nice pictures. I'm like, okay, the story must not be very good because the pictures are really good. It's like, oh, dude, he's teaching in here. Yes. So I was fired up to realize that like there's a lot in that and there's love. Do you want to just talk about like why, first of all, why are you writing this book in the first place? Like you got normal books. You're like an influencer, dude. You got like all these things going on. Where'd this come from? And what are you trying to do with it? Yeah, well, it's crazy because, uh, you know, around the time that I was writing my first nonfiction book was called Get Out of Your Own Way. I was realizing that the idea of even having to write a book inside of like a self-help or personal development kind of a category exists only because we maybe don't learn capital T truths at an early enough age that as the world then starts to shape what we think and how we feel about ourselves, uh, you have to then buy those books to try and unlearn some of the things that you've been taught. And so I started doing this fun thing with my daughter, who at the time was two called Tea Time. My daughter's name is Noah. 
And we started filming it. And I thought, you know, maybe I can condense some of these higher level adult themed, uh, you know, personal development ideas and make them um, at a two year old level so that she can actually understand what the heck I'm talking about, such that maybe if they land and stick, she is a little more um, prepared to defend against the way that the world or other people or whatever social media might uh, try to change the way that she thinks about herself or feels. And so we started filming the series and people on the internet really liked it because it was really cute because as much as I like to think myself a good teacher, uh, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, they don't actually uh, have a capacity to understand every single thing that you're talking about, which makes it partially hilarious. But when uh, the book came out and it was a success and the series was on and it was working and, and people were enjoying it, my publisher came and said, hey, what do you think about writing a kid's book about this uh, tea time experience of yours? I'm like, heck, yeah, let's do it. That sounds like the coolest thing. And so it's been a couple of years in the works in that, uh, you know, Noah and I get to do a project together. I, I always hoped that she would be as excited and into it as I was. And she has actually been more excited. Like asking, you know, what's the update? Where are the pictures? Do we get, you know, and like the video of her getting to see herself on the cover of a book for the first time is one of my favorite things I think I've probably ever captured because there's this pride of being involved in a project, but also this pride of being able to see yourself on the cover. So the book is called Here's to Your Dreams, and it's all about hopefully the adventure and the fun and the great pictures, but also reminding young readers of their ability to dream, that they need to kind of trust the dreams that have been placed in their heart. And it takes them through a little bit of how dreaming works, which is you cast a big dream and then you start to second guess yourself. And then you have to go figure out how to you know, make that dream happen. And you start down the path and then you make a mistake and then you learn from the mistake and then you keep on going. And in this, Noah has a dream of building a ship and she doesn't know how to build a ship, tries to find someone to help, has to learn how to do it on her own, doesn't do it right the first time. When we finally get the boat ready, we get it out at sea, conditions that are unpredictable show up, like life will have happen and it starts to rain and we got to figure out how to make it through. But it ends up being a story of, yeah, permission to dream, dream big, believe in yourself, resilience, tenacity, learning from failure and reframing it. So um, there are a lot of little lessons inside of it. Hopefully it's also, as you say, it all rhymes. So, you know, hopefully it's also a little bit of fun and uh, leaves the, the young reader and the old reader thinking a little bit about what it might mean to dream and believe in yourself. And I hope, you know, more than anything, I want my daughter to believe that she can um, do anything she put, puts her mind to. And uh, I think the conceit of the book, the hope of the book is that the reader who finishes it believes a little bit more in themselves when they're done. Man, I am such a sucker for those rhyming books, by the way. And this was really well done because sometimes they're forced, as well as I find with the kids, there's always these books that try and teach lessons that are so forced. And I'm genuinely saying this to everyone listening. It is both a good rhyming book and the lessons are just like part of the story. Yeah. I wrote down like seven or eight things here. It was like having a dream, trying things, realizing you can do things yourself, you're responsible, overcoming obstacles, negative self-talk, being supportive, becoming a leader. Like, dude, I, I took all of that from Let's the go. book. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, here, here I am. I'm the dad. So uh, excellent, excellent job, man. Thank you for doing that. And uh, thank you for just being a light, bro, because, dude, you're just leading. And I really, really appreciate that. This has been an absolute joy. Uh, where else would you like to send people if they want to learn more about you or get your books or anything like that? Uh, I mean, I'm intermittently on uh, Instagram these days. Mr. Dave Hollis is my handle. And if you want to check out the book, here's to your dreams.com. You can uh, see it there. And uh, if you order it, there's a bunch of fun little bonuses that uh, come along with it. So I appreciate you all for uh, checking it out. Thank you, Kurt. Amazing. Yeah, man. Thank you. Uh, pardon me. Thank you for coming on. I'm going to put all of that in the show notes, dad.work slash podcast. As usual, Dave, man, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the work you do. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. You got it, brother. Thanks for having me on. All right. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Dad Work Podcast. That's it for this episode. But if you would like to stay in touch between weekly episodes, why don't you go over to Instagram and follow me there? Because I drop a number of things throughout the week that are related to what we talk about on this podcast, but usually go a little bit deeper, provide some tips. You can find me on Instagram at dadwork.curt. That's D-A-D-W-O-R-K dot C-U-R-T. 
And please, if you have been getting something out of this podcast, if it has touched you, if it has improved your marriage, your parenting, or your life, would you please leave a quick review on Apple or Spotify? Leave a rating. If you have a few extra seconds, leave a quick review. That's the best way that we can get this work in the hands of more fathers. And I truly believe that we change the world one father at a time because each father that parents better, that loves better, raises children who do the same. And in just a couple of generations, I feel like we could be living in a world much better than the one we live in today. Your review will help along that path. And I thank you so much for being here to listen. Until next week, we'll see you then.